Hello everyone and welcome to Preparing for Launch, the show where it's our mission to make your space career take flight. We interview professionals from across the space sector to gain an insight into what they do and hopefully get some tips on how to join the industry. So, episode 18. For this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Anushka Sharma, who is the founder of the consultancy Nort, that's N-A-A-U-T, and co-founder of the London Space Network. Nush is a connector and technology generalist and has focused on AI, Web 3.0, and deep technology for space applications. She specializes in building communities and partnerships across the space and technology ecosystems. Recently, she has been the senior technical program coordinator for the UK's national high-performance computing facility, Dirac. During our chat, we discuss her role working with high-performance computers, transitioning from politics to startups to space, founding the London Space Network, and much more. First, however, this week's 60-second space briefing. This is your 60-second space briefing for Sunday, 5th of February 2023. Franco-German startup The Exploration Company has received 40.5 million euros in Series A funding. The company is developing a reusable space capsule, Nix, which it hopes will carry scientific missions, resupply space stations and eventually fly crews to and from orbit. Its first prototype, Bikini, is set to ride on the first Ariane 6 rocket, scheduled to launch later this year. On Thursday, 26th of January, the US Treasury Department placed sanctions on SpaceD, a Chinese Earth observation provider and small sat developer. The company is alleged to have supplied the Wagner Group, Russia's private military firm, with SAR imagery of Ukraine. Also relating to China, the US shot down a high-altitude Chinese, quote, spy balloon off the coast of South Carolina yesterday. The Asian government claims that the object was conducting meteorological observations and was blown off course. The tensions, which had been ongoing since it was first spotted earlier this week, caused US Secretary of Defense Anthony Blinken to cancel a planned trip to Beijing. Okay, so hi Nush, thank you very much for coming on Preparing for Lunch. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm so delighted to be here. Like I really appreciate it. No problem at all. So, um, I think this has been the most interesting interview to prepare for uh, so far. I don't think I've ever seen someone with such a diverse um, CV or sort of career history. So, I've got notes on everything from high performance computing to you're a founder to working in a biotech AI company to helping organize. COGX, um, working the London Olympics, uh, subject matter expert for the NASA Space Apps Challenge, and even working in the Conservative Party. So um, with all that, I think just to maybe make it easier for our audience, maybe start with the London Space Network. Yeah, so uh, four years ago this year, um, two friends of mine and I, so big shout out to Harriet and Manny, um, 
basically were so tired of seeing each other at conferences outside of the UK, when at that time we were all based in London. And as someone who entered the space sector in my like early 30s and then didn't qualify for some of the funding and bursaries, I found access to some of the conferences slightly starting to dwindle because I was self-employed. And that was my angle for me of like being part of this like co-founding like team to put on events to strengthen the UK space ecosystem and the community because like why couldn't we just meet up more regularly more pu- like in a pub in London and a different pub every time and that was really the essence of it it was just ensuring that we removed all the barriers to like network networking which is often like one of the coolest things that we go to access at conferences but when sometimes particularly for me early stage in joining the space sector I couldn't always afford those tickets um or travel and accommodation to get to various locations. It was one of those um, it was one of those events that I personally wanted to be a part of shaping that removed all of those barriers. So we've had incredible incredible supporters from across the space community supporting us with sponsorship. And honestly, the ingredients are a Sharpie pen, other pens are available, a sticky label, and a pub. And bringing people together. And that honestly is like, it's the coolest thing we do every month for me. I get to catch up with incredible people from across the space ecosystem, from students to early care, early career, like space professionals, to people that are pivoting into the space sector, to rocket propulsion engineers, to future astronauts, like you name it, the depth and breadth of the space ecosystem is represented in our over now 900 plus members. Yeah, I must say I've not I've not been lucky enough to to attend a, an event yet, but I've heard very, a lot of very good things from lots of people. And maybe what surprised me was that I think people from all around the UK uh, go. It makes sense in a way because London's the capital and you know the biggest city in the UK. But um, seeing how a lot of I guess space companies are based outside London, especially those involved in manufacturing, I was seeing posts on LinkedIn from like I think uh, Josh Weston from Spaceforge going all the way from. Yeah from Wales. So yeah, it's quite cool that you've, uh, you managed to get together so many different people. There was a massive Bristolian contingent yesterday and Josh was there representing with many others. And it impresses me so much that, you know, um, community members from like the Harwell um, community in Oxford, particularly when we host events in West London, right by Paddington Station, we do that on purpose. We want to remove the barriers of access to the event and people will literally come and get there straight after work. They'll spend a couple of hours, they'll network, and then they'll get on the train and they'll go home. And thank goodness for the travel infrastructure of the new Elizabeth line in London, which has meant that if we are even in like East London, there's a really fast connection back to Paddington for people to catch those last trains if they are indeed going back to like the west or the southwest and equally it's i think that's the like the equalizer is that sometimes events are held in places that aren't always easy to get to or they're um quite far away from maybe where you're living or working particularly if you're working from home and so like just having the opportunity to move it around and also support like local british pubs which we all know um haven't had like the bounce back in recent years as we'd like all like but they have become a really indispensable part of our like community and it's also so fun going to a pub and bringing them like business too so yeah it's it's been great and again like massive shout out to my co-founders Harriet and Manny we all came with different experiences across the space sector 
And I think if with the greatest respect, if either one of us had tried to do it alone, I'm not sure that it would have been as successful as it is now. And it truly is a testament to the work we've all done in our careers across the space ecosystem and beyond that working together as co-founders, we can share the responsibility of like organizing events ourselves. Um, But it also means that we get to attract different and diverse communities of people um, and bring them into the fold and get them involved with LSN, the London Space Network. So if anyone listening hasn't yet been, sign up to our mailing list. It's the first place you hear about the event. And I, I invite you all to join us because honestly, it's good vibes. And there is a code of conduct. So like, I never want anyone to feel unsafe in any environment at any public event. Um, and we're always there. If you need if you need anything, we're there. And if there's someone you want to meet, talk to myself, Harriet or Manny or any of the other members and we'll do our best to try and connect you to someone that you want to meet. Great. I'm guessing no requirements to join. Anyone can join just with an interest in space. Yeah. So anyone who's working in the space sector, there are people that are aspirational about considering a career in the space sector. There are students, there are people that like me pivoted into working in the space sector. And I truly believe like, this is my personal opinion that if the space sector is going to scale over the next like short, mid and long-term years, we really do need to depend on the talent from like, perhaps like the tech sector and people that are like mid and um, senior career level pivoting into the space sector to like really clunk up some of like the companies that are now looking to get that investment and really scale and build fast for our future space economy. So it's a super exciting time. And again, if you have any questions, reach out to me. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Like I'm always there to like answer any questions that you might have and just come and check it out with an open mind. But I highly recommend that you um, sign up to our mailing list because that's the first way you hear about the event. They sell out faster and faster every month. Like um, January's event sold out in like 24 hours. Um, this month's event sold out in like five hours. So it's, there is a demand there, but also um, it's, it, it kind of helps like having that critical number like of people that attend. And so I think it's something that's really building up momentum. So who knows what the future holds for LSN? I know that um, Harry and Manny and I, we're always looking for supporters from across the space ecosystem. But equally, if you want to like get involved, again, drop us a line. There's so many ways to engage and we're really open to hearing all the ideas. Yeah, I'll make sure to link all that stuff in uh, in the episode description. I'm guessing that's Harriet Brettel, right? Harriet Brettel and Manny Shaw. So right. like, uh, we had yeah. Harriet Brettel on episode number two of uh, Preparing for Launch back in 2020. Oh, so maybe, maybe at some point we'll have a London Space ne- Network founder uh, episode, <gasps> seeing as we've had you as well. So that maybe. would be so fun. That would be so fun. <laughs> yeah, it could be. It's definitely a good idea for the future. Um, but yeah, we'll definitely link all that stuff in, in the episode description. So London Space Network aside, which um, as much as you're very passionate about it and uh, I, I really can't wait to go myself, I'm guessing that's not your full-time day job. What are you up to nowadays in terms of career? Yeah, so um, the pandemic over the last couple of years, let's not forget that this has been a bit of a... Um, 
I don't know, a moment of reflection. But for me, I um, my consultancy is called Nort, a space tech and innovation consultancy, which pre-pandemic I had been doing full time. So I was working on a project based basis with various like deep technology startups. And um, one of them that you mentioned is um, a biotech company called um, Bios. And they're based in Cambridge. And previously, I've run partnerships for COGX, the the one of the world's biggest festivals for AI and emerging technology. Um, I've previously also worked with the NASA Frontier Development Lab. But when the pandemic hit, um, my my consulting business was hit. I honestly wasn't able to travel the world. Um, I couldn't access some of the meetings that I needed to get to. And I started to think about what I could pivot into. And one of my ethoses in life is to be a lifelong learner. And I thought to myself that over the last like previous say, four years pre-pandemic, I'd really focused on my um, network and knowledge of artificial intelligence and machine learning at the intersection of technology and business and startups and where it like sat as a layer across all of the industries. And a big focus of that was some of the work I did at COGX, working and building partnerships with the Alan Turing Institute um, and many other incredible organizations. Um, if you check out the COGX website, there's lots of information there. But it came to the pandemic and I was like, okay, what am I really going to do? And an opportunity came up to work with Dirac. And this is working This is working on a national high-performance computing facility that provides high-performance computing or supercomputing for astronomers and theoretical physicists. And I got on board as a senior technical program coordinator. And what that means is I get to sit across all of our Dirac sites and services. So we have three different types of supercomputing services um, at, based at four sites. And they're across the University of Cambridge, the University of Durham, the University of Edinburgh, and the University of Leicester, which is actually like my home team. So I started working there part-time. And what was so cool is we'd just gone through procurement of the Dirac 3 systems. And what that meant is I was able to understand the process of designing bespoke science-driven supercomputers that are built with peer review at the heart of it to basically build supercomputers for science. And what's so cool is that there is specific science being done at the University of Edinburgh. There's different types of science um, being done at the University of Cambridge and at Durham and at Leicester that is tuned. These systems are tuned for the best part of science and it's all peer reviewed. So it's given me incredible access to understand like the hardware and the software and benchmarking systems, as well as I've also been really lucky. I've been able to chair the research software engineering group and really build a community of research software engineers that are involved in some of our science projects, but also are on the fringes and just part of the community of future talent that we're trying to really build up in high performance computing. So it's been an incredible way to learn and be paid at the same time. And on the side with Nort, you might have seen me over the last couple of years doing much more like media and TV appearances, mainly talking about the business of space. So I think I really want to focus now moving forward on like Nort more full time. So that's what's so exciting about 2023 and beyond um, is that having navigated like the pandemic, having navigated like um, a new area of expertise that I've kind of really driven into and dived really deep in, um, 
the opportunities of what I really love to do is like learn for life, innovation, deep technology and applications of technology for space and other areas is really what's really integral to what I do going forward. That sounds really interesting. There's a lot to unpack there. So we'll, we'll go bit by bit. Um, that's okay. First of all, I didn't want to get um, too technical. No, no, absolutely. It's really interesting. Uh, it serves as a great sort of introduction, and we can cherry pick a few topics and and, may, and and maybe discuss them. So, just for our listeners who aren't maybe up to speed on um, high performance computing, what sort of experiments uh, would require high, these high performance computers? You said they're based all over, around the UK, and yeah. I'm guessing from your work they're like related between them. How are they? Yeah, firstly, how do we use them for experiments? So, what experiments are carried out in them? So there are um, PIs, so principal investigators who um, are given or apply for research software engineering time. So I'm mainly based on like the technical side of things. So the scientists who are running various experiments using supercomputers um, perhaps need to optimize code to basically run their simulations that are large scale simulations on a specific system. So sometimes they won't necessarily know what system they need so we can help them with that. Once they know what system they need and they need research software engineering support, we provide that support by one of our RSEs, so research software engineers, to help the the PI achieve the result of the science experiment um, that they're trying to do or the methodology. one of those areas in research software engineering is optimizing code. So there are ways that you can profile a code to ensure that you're going to get the best outcome, finesse to the system that you're using. And that's one of the areas that a research software engineer can help. But it's really interesting in doing this as like a technical, non-technical person with a business hat on. What's really interesting is like this definition of a research software engineer too, because to me, like some of them consider themselves high performance computing consultants. Because if you think about it, they're providing a high performance computing service in consultation to a project principal investigator or a scientist to help them basically get the best out of the experiment that they're trying to run with the technical system that they are. And so one of the kind of like, I'm, I'm at heart, I'm a sense maker. So for me, I was like, oh, this is interesting. Let's make sense of this. What does this mean? It means that in the future, imagine if you're a scientist and you have got the support of a research software engineer, the world of academia hasn't yet figured out that would a research software engineer potentially have to be credited on a report if they've inched the science result closer because of their technical support of such outcomes of a paper? And this isn't really something that maybe the organization I represent um, naturally thinks about, or maybe the wider academic uh, community doesn't really think about. But I truly think that in the future, this is something we need to think about. And as the onset of AI and machine learning algorithms becomes even more prevalent, like what part is that automation going to play in 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 transparency, right, of where the support has come in getting new science out there, but equally in transferring some of that, like those lessons so that any future people that are running similar types of computational large scale simulations, because let's not hide the truth. Large scale computers suck up a lot of energy, right? So one of the key areas that anyone running a supercomputer or high performance computing system has to think about, and it's really central to the work we're doing, is thinking about the sustainability angle and the use of power. 
And we've done some incredible work at the University of Leicester, and I can send you a link to an incredible report that one of my colleagues, Antonin Potelli, um, Professor Antonin Potelli, has written about the work we've done in clocking down GPUs to get an incredible result and output that reduces the cost of energy, but doesn't implicate on the output of the science and the results that we're looking. So I hope that that gives you kind of like a roundabout view um, and puts a little bit in context some of the work we do. But there is a whole YouTube page, which I can also send you a link on, on all the incredible science and outcomes that have come out of the, um, the use of the Dirac National Supercomputing Facility. And it's all Science, Technology and Facilities Council funded. So that's STFC for short. And they're an incredible organization that are really drilling into science and really opening up like science applications for the real world. So really exciting. Okay. So when you were mentioning before that these uh, high performance computers or supercomputers were built with a peer review in mind, is that what you're referring to, to being able to credit those uh, research software engineers in the final outcomes of that science being carried out? So actually it's a step before that. So before consider what I just talked about as like the end result once the system comes online. But to create and build the hardware and software systems of these supercomputers, you need to know that they are tuned to the science that you're trying to run. And they're based on, say, in Edinburgh, a physics problem. And the systems based at Edinburgh have been tuned particularly for that type of um, science. And so it's peer reviewed by um, scientists and a whole like board structure before the system is even like commissioned and procured. Uh, and that for me has been really interesting to see because at the moment, many of us will be seeing so many different types of like supercomputing offerings on cloud. And the thing about science-based systems is because they are based on the science is like the back end. So benchmarks are run to ensure that you're getting the optimal output that you need. In cloud computing, it's making it way more accessible to access the compute to run those large scale simulations. But as someone who co-chairs and chairs the research software engineering group, that is talent that in many ways that if the user doesn't have to use that talent, it might in the future diffuse some of those skills whilst at the same time, it's making access to the supercomputing way more accessible. So I do think that in the world of business versus like the academic side of like high performance computing, there is so much nuance, but there is so much dilution potentially in business, but that could be a good thing because it's giving people access to supercomputers. So I hope this makes sense because it sounds like I'm giving way more questions than I'm answering the question, but this is how my brain works. I'm constantly sense-making to look for the gaps. So I see the use for the university and academic community and science community. I see the potential use of supercomputers for businesses going forward, but the in-between of like the raw talent of the research software engineers and knowing that there is a lack of like people joining that um, like uh, career stream is potentially going to be an issue in the future if we're going to be a science-driven innovation nation. So it's all connected from, from what I can see. And this is some of like the biggest learnings I've had um, during my time here at Dirac. 
I hope that's okay and it's not too technical. <laughs> oh, no, I think it's very interesting. A lot, yeah, I think I agree. More questions than answers, but uh, very interesting nonetheless. Just to sort of uh, tie it all together, maybe um, for the audience, what is the, I know there's, like everyone says, and no two days are the same in most jobs, seems to be the, the common uh, reply. But what does a, a nine to five look like for you? Nine to five? Does that even exist anymore? So Nine I work six, eight to, eight, to eight. I work part time. I do 22 hours a week. And the great thing about my role and the team I work in is number one, I'm remote. So I'm based in London, but work for the University of Leicester across a distributed national team. And so I choose my hours based on like the meetings I have set up. So um, let's take a... Um, Tuesday, <laughs> for example. And I do try and structure my week just for myself so that I can guard time specifically for naught. So one of the other things I do is um, look at the innovation placements for industry. So I could be talking to an AI company. Um, I could be talking to a really interesting like startup in biotech. And one of the things we're doing currently is looking to have interesting research-based um, innovation placements for early stage career scientists and PhDs who are already funded by STFC. And what we do is we talk to really interesting startups and AI companies and machine learning driven organizations and institutions such as Transport for London, um, let me name you some others, the NHS, um, uh, some really cool organizations, the Met Office, where we're putting an early career scientist into a um, real world innovation placement where they're solving a problem that is not related to their science-based PhD or study so far. And the reason we do that is because we want to give them real world access to using a different side of their skills with a real world application. So on Tuesdays, I could be on like a couple of like back to back calls of various different potential partners, existing partners um, and um, researching other partners that might come on board or um, could potentially have a really interesting innovation placement for an early career scientist. So I'm also on a project board meeting and we um, discuss our plans for procurement across the like the various sites that I've mentioned. Um, and what I'm constantly capturing from my, my uh, technical program coordinator role is the key decisions that have been made, who they've been made by, because at the end, we have to be accountable for every decision that's been made. We're funded from government money and income stream. So every penny we spend has to be accounted for. And when it is a project-based system, sometimes the hardest thing is like capturing those key decisions that are made at the end of a project delivery time. And so one of the things that I've really put in place is a structure um, to capture this information. And then I'll often review that with the director and ensure that there was nothing that was missed. And if there was something technically that was a little bit more nuanced that we needed to capture, then we ensure that. But it's it's basically like project management, uh, which is another kind of like hat tip of stuff that I do. Um, and then equally like getting ready for the research software engineering um, bi-weekly meetup. So ensuring that all the resources are uploaded onto a system called Confluence that we use. And it's a bit like a Google Drive, uh, like uh, OneDrive. And 
it's a great system and it's something I've really had to learn. And one of the things I've also learned about academic systems is they're very clunky to me. When you work with startups, a lot of them are using like Google Workplace and like other like Slack and 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 they do use Slack, but it's just used very differently to what I'm used to in startup land. Um, so that's probably an average day because it kind it kind of averages out to about six or seven hours a day. Um, and in between, like, you know, when you're working from home, I make sure I go out for that walk in the middle of the day, especially because it's winter right now. I need the sunshine. I need the bright light because it can get to like six or seven. And then I feel like I've been at my laptop all day. Um, So yeah, I try to like schedule like getting out, going for a walk, getting some fresh air, um, visiting a local like independent coffee shop, uh, but also in the mornings, taking time to like set myself up with my homebrew coffee, um, frothing it up with like olive oil and not olive oil, sorry, coconut oil and cinnamon and some honey. Um, that's been like one of my favorite things to start my day off with every day. That's essential. And also meditation, like that really helps center me for the day, no matter what business I'm doing that day. Moving away from your part-time role in high-performance computing, talk to us a bit about um, your consultancy. Yeah. So this is my mission for 2023 is really to step up the work that I'm doing with Nort. So I'm going to use this as an opportunity to um, put it out there that I'm really looking for interesting projects. Um, I'm looking to collaborate. Um, And what I'm really personally really interested in at the moment is the ethics of space and the application of technology in space. I think that this is often an overlooked area because we all get so excited with technology and its application, rightly so. But also, are we thinking about the wider implications of technology? And I think this is a wider conversation because, you know, a lot of people that go into um, work as ethicists um, have a PPE degree. But what they might not have is uh, an insight in te- into technology and its application. And so I'm currently exploring that gap. And I think one of my like key skills is that I'm a connector a sense maker. And I've been horizon scanning deep technology and its applications since my degree, like 21 years ago. (laughs) 21 years ago, I graduated with a computing degree. And it's so interesting to me to see the time that it's taken for the technology I imagine to be a part of our everyday life to actually be a part of our everyday life. And so like one of the things I'd say to any of the UK SEDS community listening is if you're frustrated that something hasn't happened yet, the one thing I had to learn is that the timing is the, some, is the something I could never control because timing of all of these different external factors coming to fruition is the one thing you can never control. So my advice to you is, and this has taken me a long time to realize, is if you have a gut feeling about something and it's not quite there yet, I know many people got burnt with crypto and some of the areas of Web3. I don't think that that means that like Web3 and crypto applications are like a dead pan. I think it's just the timing of the um, messiness of things getting like standardized legislation, regulation, different nation states have different protocols for this. All you can do is operate in like a, like a container of what you know you can control. But equally, use this as an opportunity to spin another plate and get excited about something that you would not have otherwise thought about. And ethics for space and technology is something I've been thinking about probably for about five years. But I really, truly am trying to make this a mission 
But that said, I am so ready to jump into a project, an organization, maybe full time. Who knows? Reach out to me. Let's see what opportunities or collaborations we can do. I love building communities and bringing people together. And that's one of the best things I love about LSN is that it allows me to do that when I've not been able to necessarily do it with Nort. And it's really frustrating because I had my first in-person event um, right before lockdown in London. Um, and it was like two days before like London officially or the UK officially locked down. So it's been a hiatus for that. And I'm truly thinking about doing um, events with Nort and bringing people together in a much more intimate way um, outside of a pub, actually, um, just because like I want to bring people together in a way that I would personally do it in a in a different way. So watch this space. There's some really interesting stuff coming up. And I'm really interested in diving into more like conversations with people, particularly around um, technology and what they're doing in space. So I'm keeping it really open at the moment, but I think that that's my strategy because I can hone that hone down then based on what projects come up. It sounds very interesting and exciting. Uh, where does Nord come from? How did the idea come about? First of all, the name. Um, and secondly, yeah. yeah. So you, cause you, you spoke right at the beginning of our interview, you spoke about doing, about traveling and, and working full time on Nort. So what was it like before the pandemic and yeah, where does Nort come from? So Nort is an astronaut and one day when I'm as rich as Elon Musk, although money is not everything in the world or life, um, I, it's spelled N-A-A-U-T. So one day, um, the double A might just become a, an A. <laughs> And I'll own the .com. But I actually visualize it with my logo with like a two triangles, which would be like an abstract A. So that's kind of my way of like getting around. And I've had some really fun like times um, kind of visualizing some like cool imagery, um, often with like pink hues and astronauts and beaches and clouds. And it's because I'm just tired of seeing like the the unfeminine side of like space represented with all the kind of like, like the dark colors and like all of that. So I try to do things that are a little bit different. Um, your question is like, like what is Nort? So Nort is my space technology and innovation consultancy. And here's a funny story, right? I set up Nort because I space was like my dirty secret, right? I had been operating in the startup ecosystem in London and it was in 2025, I was setting up a 20,000 square foot co-working space for a company called Tech Hub, which was basically the home of product driven tech startups. And I was in charge of like curating it and filling it out with all of the coolest product oriented tech startups in London. We had food tech, we had um, crypto, we had the company that put the first Bitcoin ATM at Google campus startups. It was like sport tech, you name it. It was the most exciting, buzzy place. And then I got chosen by NASA to attend uh, the launch of a satellite um, from Vandenberg Air Force Base. And it was incredible. I got to go to Vandenberg Space Force Base, as it's now called, and witness the launch of SMAP, which is the Soil Moisture Active Passive Satellite. And then I came back to London, and then I sort of carried on with space, uh, with with like technology and startup stuff, and kind of like started exploring space and attending conferences. But I was doing it without really telling people that that's what I was doing. I was kind of like straddling two different worlds, and. A friend of mine gave me some fantastic advice at an IAC in Bremen a couple of years, like 
years ago after that. And he basically said to me, he was like, Anushka, it's all very well. You're doing all this really cool stuff. I know that you really love space, but unless you're actually doing something in space, it's not going to count because no one's going to know. I was like, wow. And that guy ended up being commercial like space participant or astronaut with Blue Origin. So, you know, I then realized that I needed to establish an identity for the like the intel and the knowledge and the acquisition of contacts and relationships and like the projects that I was like building towards. And so Nort was born. And Nort's had, I call it a consultancy because um, at the moment, like I flex up the team when I when I take on bigger projects. But the majority of the time, it's been me being project-based and working with an organization. For instance, the NASA Frontier Development Lab, who work in partnership with SETI in America and NASA for the big um, AI and space research-based uh accelerator program that runs in the summer. And equally, FDL Europe runs in partnership with the European Space Agency and really focuses on like Earth observation for space, machine learning for space. Um, and it's been, inc- it was incredible working with them. But in recent years, because of the pandemic, I've mainly been focusing on like media and communications of like space and science. And so I've had an opportunity to talk about the commercialization of space and its future potential, particularly when it comes to space tourism. So I go from like high deep technology to like really trying to translate it for everyday people. And it's so funny because we all get imposter syndrome. And honestly, it's like every time I get approached by the media, I'm like, I'm not a scientist. I'm not an expert on this. And the amount of times I've been told, well, we don't really want a scientist. We want someone that can talk to like everyday people and children and families and and help them understand what's going on. And then I realized like that's one of the skills that I really enjoy. I love translating technology and the applications of like space technology to everyday people. And it's so weird, like after the pandemic, I feel like I'm coming into 23, 2023 with purpose, where I really want to drive like that really like, um, what's the word? Like the things that I am really excited about and I want to talk about them more and I want to write about them. I've got a list of posts that I need to write. We went to Goonhilly and had this incredible behind the scenes access tour with some of the UK um, SEDS volunteer team. Isaac, you were one of them. Like that tour was insane. It was such a privilege to be in the mission control center, to see the antennas, to see technology that was built with pure concrete, liquid concrete 50 years ago is standing the test of time and has been involved in like deep space missions and connectivity with space, with NASA, with JAXA, with the European Space Agency from the Apollo missions and going through to Artemis 1 and beyond. This is insane. So these are the things that I've been able to, this is just one example of some of the cool things I've got to do that even to this day with no, I just have never had the chance to like actually say. And so I feel like there's a lot of real untapped work that I know I can do, but I really need to honestly get better at telling people about the cool stuff I'm doing. And so that's something I really want to focus on because I want that to be the platform that I can build on on future opportunities, maybe this year, maybe in five years, maybe in 10 years, maybe in 20 years. Who knows? That one lesson I learned about timing, who knows? But if I don't put it out there, I can't attract that to me. So that's my objective. So it's okay to not know, but it's good to like, what's the word? It's like, until you come to the table and grab that seat, like 
No one knows that that seat's like, it's vacant, right? You don't have a voice until you're sitting at the table or like opening the door and jamming it open just to stand in the room. I feel like I've been standing in the room and now I'm like ready to take my seat at the table. And that's what I want to do this year. Great. Um, so this turned into a bit of a new news resolution podcast now. But, uh, <laughs> Sorry. But, uh, better late than never. Um, just to go into a bit more detail about mm-hmm. Nort. So you were saying you were doing a bit more media work before, whereas you were doing a bit, a bit more of like tech work before mm-hmm. the pandemic. Um, who were like your sort of customers before the pandemic? And what, why would they why would they contract Nord? Sort of what was like your selling point, I guess? So um, my key skill sets are partnerships, building relationships, and um, sense-making. So the work I'd done in the AI and machine learning ecosystem meant that I was able to connect people from industry, from massive organizations down to really niche technology companies and startups that are micro. And the great thing about that is, is um, for one of my clients, I was able to provide like um, peer review from industry experts to help a space agency design their strategic science missions of which we've actually seen over the last five years. And what that meant is I was able to bring people to a table of a space agency. They got to meet the chief technology officer and engage with them in a way, because who doesn't want to sit around a board table with NASA or any other space agency, whether it's European Space Agency, whether it's ISRO, whether it's JAXA, and actually provide them with like like market-led intelligence as an expert, as a subject matter expert. But you don't just get to get someone in the room. You have to know who they are and what their expertise is. I'm the person that knows those people that are making those business-driven things in the real world that is going to provide that expertise to the agency, to the deep tech startup, to the startup that's scaling and really growing um, and building those partnerships. So that's one of the services. So I'm kind of like the fixer. If there's something that you need, whether it's an expertise, whether it's um, an external partner, whether it's um, looking at a policy area, understanding the strategic value of innovation and technology that you need to think about going forward. One of my other clients was um, a um, manufacturer of baby milk. And what they do is provide the first 100 days of nutrition to newborn babies. They cannot mess that up. A newborn baby's life, the first 100 days, if for whatever reason a parent or mother is not able to provide um, breast milk, then this organization is providing that milk and nutrition. And so I curated and designed an innovation day for their global heads of um, procurement and supply chain. And what that was doing, and this was probably in 2016, this was creating for them a day where they learned about artificial intelligence, blockchain technology, and they got to speak to agri-tech startups that I knew and connected them to. And I arranged a whole day of like an innovation strategy day that was there to inspire them. It was there to help them build the relationships with their own team. It was there to teach them about technologies that were coming up fast for their industry and sector. Um, It was to 
um, demonstrate case studies of applications of, say, artificial intelligence or blockchain technology or agritech technology in Africa, um, food sharing in the UK. So can you imagine, obviously, with the like cost of living crisis right now, there are people that are unable to afford baby milk. And it's actually illegal to resell baby milk that's been opened or used. But if you're a desperate parent and you can't afford the really high priced baby milk for your like personal needs, and it's shared on a platform that is sharing resources out to the community, um, massive shout out to Olia, who were the startup at that point that I reached out to. Um, that manufacturer of baby milk had no idea that their product was being resold or reshared on a like community sharing platform. And so there were incredible insights where a massive organization, FTSE 100 company could build a relationship with a UK based startup and they could innovate. And, and in many ways, that means that that organization is in control of their product because they have to be accountable for how it gets to a baby's belly. But equally, with blockchain technology coming online, they understood that if they were going to understand a batch of baby milk and how it was manufactured from a specific factory in a specific country at a specific date from a specific livestock, and there was an issue with it, they needed a way to know how to track that. Guess what? That's blockchain. So that's one of like another kind of like case study example of some of the work. And you might be thinking like, why is this relevant for space? Well, in the future, humans might need nutrition in space, right? So that organization, if they're providing early stage nutrition for a newborn baby, what about when you need nutrition for a human 200 days in space, 100 days in space? Like, is there going to be something about the technology of the product that they've created, knowing that in the meantime, they've figured out the supply chain issue using blockchain technology, or they figured out how to apply AI in a way that optimizes the product development or how it's designed or how it's manufactured, then actually that product has longevity to be a product that can be part of the future space economy for that organization. And so for me, I'm constantly trying to push organizations that are not considering themselves as space-based today to think about where they might sit in the space economy in the future or near future. Because as far as I'm concerned, every organization and every single one of us is a part of the space ecosystem, whether we formally are in a job right now that represents that or not. It's a, it's a given, which why I want to come back to the ethics point because I want to ensure that space is there and accessible to everybody. And we do so in a way that we operate with a code of conduct and protocols that are ensuring like it's the for the benefit of all of humanity. So in a roundabout way, you could probably scrap everything else I've said earlier on today and just focus on this because hopefully that kind of like beds in a lot of my thinking and like some of the processes I've gone to um, and through with some of the work that I've presented to um demonstrate the value of why I'm so passionate about the space sector and why it's something we should all be considering in the future. Awesome. Um, so am I right in thinking you originally have a degree in IT or computing? Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, it's taken mm. me 21 years to identify as a computer scientist. How crazy is that? And that's because of the work I'm doing in HPC now. So I've always been right, quite techy, and it's so funny. I was thinking about this earlier on today. My dissertation was on consumer implementation and killer applications of 3G, and I published that in 2022, 2002, sorry, 
just shaved off like 20 years. Um, and it was so cool because at the time I wrote about the potential of like location-based services for like weather on demand, news flashes on demand. And I'd created like a um, emulator of a mobile phone that actually demonstrated killer applications. So um, if I'd gone further and like demonstrated apps like Twitter and Facebook and all these other things, I was already thinking about that in 2002 before the prolific rise of um, social media platforms that became these killer applications on our phone. Like how many of us um, listening now don't have WhatsApp installed or TikTok or Instagram um, or Uber or, you know, ride sharing? Like these are killer applications that we have on our mobile phones, which are powered by the devices, also the network. So we're not necessarily on 3G anymore. We might be in some parts of the world, but in the UK, we tend to be 4G leaning on 5G if you're lucky. And um, fiber or hybrid. So we have access to um, the connectivity that allows us to have these killer applications and run them in a way that we were never able, even I couldn't have imagined as much as I'd written about it 21 years ago, just how much we would depend on these phones. But I think deep down I did. I just didn't have like the experience of like where I knew it. I knew I had a hunch of where it could go. And that's really like a phone is one of the most powerful devices in our lives right now, more so than my laptop that I'm doing this call with you on. Um, and there's something really significant about this device going forward, right? We augment so much of our life using these devices. Um, and there's something really cool about that. So yeah, I did a computing degree 21 years ago this year, and it took me about 19 years before I actually actually went into a technical computing role where I then formally felt like I could identify myself as a computer scientist. So I'm going to add that to my hat now on my LinkedIn. Uh, this might be asking for a, a, a summary of a lot of things, but um, how come you, how come it took you maybe 19 years to get go into a more techie role? You, you mentioned uh, London and being involved with startups and I sort of read some of the things uh, I'd seen on your CV before. Um, where did you go after your degree and yeah, why did it take you so long to go back into, into tech? Again, this is a timing thing, right? So I came out fresh faced, big eyed. I was like, oh my God, like the world of computing and like SMEs. We didn't call startups startups then. They were SMEs formally, which often meant like organizations of like five to 20 people, um, which was really what you classify now as a startup. And I actually ended up um, joining a voiceover IP telephony company. Some of you guys might not, listening might not remember, but we used to have modems to connect to the internet. And um, that meant you had to have a phone line and a hardwire copper, copper wire. And so many of the organizations I was trying to sell voice over IP telephony, which is really what we're doing when we're doing a WhatsApp voice call, right? We're doing it over the connection, not through a hardwired line. Um, many of the organizations that were calling were paying atrocious phone bills and they weren't yet even on ISDN, which is fiber optic cable to basically be cheaper and have higher bandwidth for phone calls. I did that for a bit. And culturally, I was the only girl in an office full of men. It was a time where people were still smoking in offices, which was not great because I had asthma. And um, culturally, there was a lot of like odd things for a woman that was quite young in her 20s was exposed to. And that was the nature of the time then. And it's taken so much time for people to really stand up for like rights in a workplace that I would say, was a bit shady. Anyway, that said, 
I fell into working in politics, right? So most of my 20s, I spent working uh, for the Conservative Party, um, managing and running events, um, managing relationships. Um, I also worked in the membership team. That's in not in any particular order and doing direct marketing. So I used to work on big data. So running and sending communications out for general elections to every household in the UK, because it's general election communication from political party. So it meant I was working on like... Um, design agencies, copy, that literally at one point I'd have to walk to number 10 to get signed off by the PM because it had to go in his box. And at that time, that was David Cameron, which was really cool. Highlights of my career. But I left to work on the Olympics at the end of 2011. So the beginning of 2020, after about eight years of working in politics, I got to work as the senior uh, senior technical, what am I saying? 2012, (laughs) I think you said 2020, 2012. Yeah, as the protocol manager for the London Olympic Stadium, which was insane because I am born and raised in London. It's my hometown. I got the jewel in the crown of the venue of the Olympic Stadium. And I got to work on the opening and closing ceremony, as well as all of the athletics, para-athletics, and the closing and opening ceremonies for the Paralympics as well. Job of my dreams, right? It's a once in a lifetime opportunity. It's the biggest show on earth. It's the biggest gathering of incredible people. And I ran like everything from the Royal Box. So from heads of state, the queen, Michelle Obama, you name it. I was like part of the team that was there as a stadium team working across like number 10, the foreign office, um, New Scotland Yard, protection, you name it with a massive team of game makers that I was line managing. Um, I had 70 games makers at the Olympic Stadium and it was insane. And to me, that was the perfect break for me from politics to the Olympics because I could provide the domestic intel of like like diplomats and, you know, high profile politicians and like politicians from across this like plethora and across the houses of parliament which was insane. And it was awesome. And I got so many stories, but it's not for today. And after the Olympics, so I, I didn't go on sabbatical. I basically used that as a chance to have a break from um, politics. And the world of politics, I don't think I would have ever been exposed to had it not been for falling into it. And I honestly started at the Conservative Party in the call centre, right? I don't think I've actually said this publicly, but I literally was on £7.50 for like working from 5 till 8 p.m. in like 2000 and something, uh, calling up people, potential like canvassing, canvassing for votes. And this is in the Michael Howard era. So this is like deep opposition. We never thought we'd ever get back into like power, let alone coalition and all those other things that happened. Um, But when I left the Olympics, I had the chance to really have like a think about what I wanted to do with my life. And that is when, and this is again, the timing of things. So the Olympics finished in 2012. In 2010 to 2012 was really when the UK Space Agency formed in the UK. It's when the startup ecosystem or the Silicon Roundabout formed around Old Street and like East London. Um, And it's when I realized that I wanted to use my computing degree and technical skills in a much more productive way. And so all these things happened, but I could never have done that the 10 years before when I graduated, because none of those things existed. So it was the timing of all of those things coming together. And yet I wasn't quite ready for space because space was something that was um, so many of us listening, right? We all want to be astronauts secretly. Let's not lie. As kids, as adults, like as like pensioners, we all want to be an astronaut at some point in the future. And 
I remember thinking to myself, like, I used to really want to be an astronaut when I was a seven-year-old kid. Like, what happened? And sometimes you have to really go back to, like, your childhood state and really think about the things that you're passionate about then. Because those truly are the times that you're not wired yet and conditioned by school, by pathways to, like, degrees or, like, A-levels and selections of, like, GCSE subjects and A-levels, right? You know as a child... um, what you're passionate about. And so after the Olympics, I spent some time in New York. I bedded myself into the startup ecosystem there because I could see that the potential of London would follow what had happened in New York. And the startup ecosystem, even in that time in 2013, 2014, still wasn't where it was like in 2010, 2012. So I knew that New York and Miami were the places I really wanted to spend time understanding how the community was working. Interestingly for Miami, it still hadn't got to where it is now in London until maybe the last four or five years. So like, it's just through the the opportunities that I made for myself. And let me tell you, right, I was bootstrapping. I was hustling. I was like working part-time in places. I remember like working as a sales assistant in Monsoon in Knightsbridge as like a temp being told not to sound like a robot. I had never worked in retail in all my life, but I needed the money to write like do all these things. Yeah. I'd worked at the Olympics and had done all these like incredible things of like meeting Michelle Obama and the queen and like other Royals and giving Prince Harry a beer and all these like random things that had happened. But the thing about life is that when you want to do something and you want to do it on your terms, you don't mind doing this. So, um, yeah. So basically then when I was working in the startup ecosystem in London, when I came back, a few years later, the opportunity with NASA came up. And that for me was the moment where I was surrounded by people that were just as passionate about space, but in everyday jobs, that I realized that I had something that I could offer the space sector. And at that time, it was so- social media and science communications. And my like the way I stood out at that time for NASA was because I was a Brit and I was able to like talk about the space launch to a community that they couldn't naturally access. But I think in like years now, I think because of the times of some of the launches, some of them are open to international um, people. So you don't have to be an American citizen. Some of them are closed because of the timings and others of them during the pandemic particularly were hosted online. So definitely check out NASA social. That was that was the moment that all the worlds of like space startups and technology for me collided. And that took like something like 15 years from doing my computing degree to manifest. That's nuts, right? Timing. I can tell you, I can only tell you this now because I'm in my early forties and yeah, I'm in my early forties. So there you go. So then when we say timing is your biggest piece of advice for our listeners wanting to get involved in the space industry? Yeah, like don't if you're if you're um put off by something not happening today and you see it so blindly obvious, don't let that put you off. Just focus on other things that you can focus on but play the long game because there are so many people I've met even with startups, right, that had a crypto startup like 10 years ago and like only now are they building traction with like web3 NFTs. DAOs, governance, all of that. So, but they were doing the hard yards then. But now the timing exists that all of the other external factors are like lined up and dotted up, which means that they can accelerate their their organization and what they're doing way more faster. But they also have in that last 10 years built the reputation. 
They've built a name for themselves. They've built a talented team, right? So don't think that the time lies idle. You have to keep like um, building your armor up and like getting those skills and diversifying or focusing and being an expert on something. So you could be diverse like me and have a portfolio background, or you could be an expert and science-based and a physics student wanting to go down the path of physics. There's nothing wrong with that. We need pure scientists. We need scientists. We need creatives. We need marketeers. We need business people. We need experts. We need everyone to come together and collaborate. And that's ultimately the goal of like any work I do is to work with people where our values align, we're working on a mission-driven way, and we're doing something that gives a positive impact back to the world and also for space. Great. And with that very positive message, we're in the interview there. Thank you very much, Nishka. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Please follow the podcast if you want to find out when we release new episodes and leave us a rating or comment or send us a message on any of the UK said social media pages to let us know what you think about the show. Join us again next time for more insights from professionals. Until then, stay safe. Preparing for Launch is UK SED's official podcast. It's hosted by me, Isaac Alatrio, produced by Seb Ravinsky and Louise Whiteman, with support from Sana Mughal.